Welcome once more to Fantastical Truth. In this nonfiction podcast about fiction, we explore amazing fiction of the fantastical variety, fantasy, science fiction, and beyond. Our mission is to find truth in these fantastical stories and to apply this truth to the real world that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has redeemed us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher, and this is Episode 6. I am Zachary Russell, but please call me Zach. This time we are going super personal. We're going to explore our favorite fantastical origin stories. How did either of us first discover this thing called fantasy or science fiction or horror or whatever else? So that is our episode. How did you and how did we first discover fantastical stories? Steve and I are going to share some of our own memories, but we're also going to share your stories that you've sent us, uh, our listeners. So thank you for sending those stories. I can't wait to share those with you. Those have been some amazing tales. And like Zach said, we're, we're going to kind of splice those in. We're going to take turns uh, sharing our stories, which of course, uh, either of us know very well uh, from the different ways that we grew up. And then we're going to intersperse that with uh, some of the amazing notes that our listeners have uh, sent us over the past several weeks. Uh, thought as I was outlining this, Zach, we'd start with, of course, the very beginning uh, the early childhood. Like what are some of the first, mm, I guess we, I mean, it could be any kind of story really, but sure. it just, at least for me, it seems that as a small child, the stories that stick with me the most are the ones that are the kind that have magic in them or time travel or robots or magical time traveling robots. Uh, and in this case, of course, the Bible itself was the first uh, fantastical story I became aware of, even though it did not have magical time traveling robots. But to me, they really should put that in there. Well, they should. And there was one series that did. And oddly enough, I don't remember as a child ever getting the two confused. There was an animated series called Superbook. That was the English translation because this wasn't just an animated series in the 1980s. It was an anime series. There was a Bible anime. So any of you nerds, any of you fans out there have ever been watching some anime on Crunchyroll or Funimation or something, I thought, oh man, there should really be a Bible anime. That, yeah, they did it. And back when Christians were cool-ish in the 1980s, actually there was a whole network, the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN. The name survives to this day, even though it's not a whole television cable channel now, but they produced in 1981 is when it released. October 1st, 1981, according to Wikipedia, the first episode aired, co-produced by Christian Broadcasting Network and Tatsunoko Productions in Japan. They produced an anime called Anime Oyako Gekijo. I completely ruined that uh, <laughs> pretty close. pronunciation. Okay, I, I, I do watch a lot of anime and I do watch it subbed, so I hope that that gets in there, but I don't know an ounce of Japanese beyond the, uh, you know, the, the conversational niceties. The rough translated uh, title that is animated parent and child theater. Uh, I, I honestly like the term uh, super book better. Uh, it literally was about uh, a magical book that opened up and spoke with a voice as unto the voice of God and took normal everyday uh, white 1980s children into the Bible stories along with their magical time traveling robot gizmo. It's funny how Every every good Japanese show has such a long title that then it gets turned into one or two words in English. I'm not really sure why that is, but like anyway, that's a whole other thing. But well, I think they've gotten a little bit better at that. One of the most popular manga and anime right now is My Hero Academia, which is the English translation of mm -hmm. Boku no Hero Academia. Mm -hmm. And the titles, of course, like to blend English and Japanese words too, and often put in the word zero for some reason. Mm -hmm. oh, they really like the word zero. So there's no zero in the title animated parent and child theater, uh, but it actually ran uh, the stories covered. It was mostly the Old Testament, but then they had a few New Testament episodes uh, in 1981 and 1982. I caught up to these when they were on, on reruns. Uh, I was, I'm not that old to have even been alive at that time. So what, uh, did, what did you love about this series, Stephen? It was a magical time traveling robot. Zach and the Bible story. So, you know, there was a so it took an, kids to Bible time. Exactly. And yeah. it was, it was a uh, little boy, Chris and, uh, is a totally platonic, uh, girl friend, joy and their <laughs> magical time traveling robot gizmo who could wind up and then occasionally could shoot fireworks out of his head. They had to wind up the robot. Yes. To go back in time. Yeah. Well, he wasn't the time traveling device. Superbook was, Oh, okay. And this is where the fantasy comes in because although uh, there's time travel, 
I mean, Super Book is a magical talking book. He opens his pages, light shines out, and you get zapped into the Time Vortex, which in the sequel series kind of looked a little like the Doctor Who Time Vortex. So I wonder if there is a little uh, cross-pollination of the imagery there. Um, so you're saying Christians made time travel cool first. Well, to me, they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a world. This was before Back to the Future and everything. Oh, it mm. kind of was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that was 85, true. right? Yeah. No, yeah. this, this is, I mean, this is genuinely creative. Okay. I, I actually think it's aged pretty well. And it was a, it was a dub that I saw it in, obviously. Well, uh, why, why did they make this? Like, what's the backstory? That's the thing. I don't know. I don't know the backstory. I think I, there may be on YouTube where I found like one, uh, um, Somebody had recorded on VHS, like a documentary that had aired on CBN about the, the missionary effort where they were putting this together or something. I would have to check it out. We could do a whole other episode about this. There was also a sequel series called uh, the Superbook 2 was the English version. It was a Pasocon Torabero Tanti. Pasocon Torabero Tanti and Don literally personal computer travel detective team, which I think is just oh, boss. Cool. So, uh, and that actually describes it pretty well, because in this case, there's a little pet dog that gets uh, zapped into the personal computer, which has now become hmm. the time travel device. And again, back then, personal computers were like the iPhone in 2006. Like th this was the cutting edge technology uh, in uh, 1983. My birth year, actually, is hmm. when the, the sequel series, that was actually my favorite. The animation was better. Uh, they delved a little deeper into the Bible stories instead of wrapping up the tale of Joseph in 25 minutes, they would do a four parter, you know, and, and everything was just more serious. So and I like that. CBN the best. Also, that was CBN also, and presumably Tatsunoko productions and the dub cast of Kimba, the white lion, basically that same cast back when there wasn't a, you know, cottage industry for dubbing anime, you know, there was at least that, that one cast that did it. And did they ever see Jesus on like the crucifix, the crucifixion? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, the, the sequel series only went from Abraham to King Hezekiah. Uh -huh. So they didn't get to the new Testament and they didn't even go to the back to the garden. Of but Eden. Did they, did they change anything? Oh, stuff was changed all the time. The stuff was changed even worse in another series called oh. the flying house, which also had a magical time traveling robot or just a robot. There wasn't as much magic there. Instead, the time travel device was a house, which had a time machine and flew and focused exclusively on New Testament stories. But did they change anything like critical to our doctrine? I would think the Flying House did. Oh, wow. Every once in a while, you could tell uh, the consultant for the script uh, was probably a mainline denomination <laughs> who wanted to emphasize the uh, Jesus really cared for people, you know. And then, so and they changed so much Jesus' words? Every once in a while. Oh, wow. Yes. So, you know, I mean, this is like time travel 101. Don't step on something or, you know, you'll bring about the apocalypse. Well, I would say that for me, it was a bit of an early lesson in discernment. I mean, this huh. was first class entertainment when I was growing up, you know, and you couldn't get smartphones or even a whole lot of uh, a cable at first. You know, this, these episodes were available on VHS tapes in Christian bookstores nationwide back when there were physical Christian bookstore chains that weren't just Mardell and VHSs. Yes. And it, it was, you know, I look back, back on this with fondness and I think that this did, uh, this, this put that little, um, uh, that little idea in my head that, Hey, the Bible is fantastical and you can mix, you know, with, with care, uh, the true words of God and the true account of Christ and God's actions in the universe with a magical time traveling robot. And a book that opens up and shines light and speaks with the voice of God, but has no origin whatsoever. What were we doing to our kids? Again, I, I never, I never questioned it. I think it maybe when I hit puberty or something, I thought, uh oh, this, this, this is kind of problematic. You know, what's, um, is super book God. I mean, he speaks like God. The voice actor is the same in the dub. What's going on? And then I just decided, eh. We'll roll with and it. Where can I buy this book? Yeah. <laughs> you can't get it anywhere. Nope. <laughs> nope. Is completely, uh, completely unexplained. Well, that's really cool to hear all that, Stephen. So I did not grow up with Christian media stuff that, not, not that I was, that I can really remember. Remember, I mean, we went to church, so I, I probably saw some things in church, but I, I just don't remember any series like this growing up. But I, I am a Star Wars kid, so I am a generation. Uh, what do you call it? I'm the the zennial generation i'm the generation yeah something like that right so just at the edge born the a little edge, before gen you. x and right before millennial yeah and so empire strikes back came out in 1980 and i had this really vague 
piecemeal memory of seeing that in theaters. So I would have only been a year too old. Uh, and so it might've been showing at the discount theater or something like that, but man, Star Wars became a huge part of my childhood. I had tons of action figures. I played all the time with my best friend growing up, David. In fact, we, David and I, I hope David's listening to this because he and I used to argue over which one of us could be Luke. And so finally his mom said, all right, you're Luke Z and you're Luke D. <laughs> and neither well, maybe one, of, one of you all could have been Luke Starkiller. Right. There we the go. proto version of the right. character. And we had this other friend, Brooke. She didn't have a choice. She was just Leia. <laughs> that was the only option for you, Brooke. And so we we still joke about that to this day. But one, one of the really fun things as an adult was getting to hand off all those action figures to my kids. And my older two girls, it was so funny when they first started playing with these, they did want to have the space battles that David and I would have. They took all the action figures to the movies. And so they set up this little thing like a movie theater. And then Han and Leia were sitting together holding hands on a date. And it's just been so fun to watch my kids adopt the old Star Wars and, of course, the new Star Wars, which uh, I don't want to get into that now. Well, see, with the kids, it's all the same. Yeah. You know, some of us are a little, I mean, like, but even prequel fans now, there's a new generation that are, they're okay with the prequels. Yeah. Which is, that's weird. Mm -hmm. I, that's not how it was in the, in the late nineties, early hundreds. Yeah. So around that same time, uh, this, this would have been somewhere around third or fourth grade. There was a book I checked out from my school library and this was the first sci-fi novel I can ever remember reading. And I have tried, I've, I tried for years and years to figure out just to remember the title of this book. All I could remember was. Uh, there's a 10 year old boy and he has an Android twin brother. And then there was this one particular scene I could remember where they're in a space station and one of them has to go underwater to disarm something nuclear. And then, um, yeah. And then all the air is evacuated. I, I had like these little vague memories of it. So I've been on this quest for years to figure out what this book was. And I finally found some guy, some guy on Reddit found it for me. It's called uh, My Robot Buddy. That's the title of the series. And it's Alfred Sloat. And that scene that I remembered was actually from book four. I don't, I don't really remember anything from books one through three or five. But Stephen, this is awesome. I got a used copy of it, uh, of book one on and book four on Amazon. And my 10-year-old daughter, who's just a huge bookworm, she's already read both of them like oh, fantastic. instantly. And I'm, I'm really excited to start reading them, but it was funny because I, I was talking on, when I found these just recently posted about it on Facebook and one of my friends said, oh yeah, I, I found, um, I found the book I loved as a kid, but then I started reading it and I hated it. <laughs> and I got to admit, there's part of me that's kind of apprehensive. Like, am I going to still like this book? Is this going to age well? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, reading the first, uh, I, I read the first chapter of, of book one. And the dad is talking about his solar car and his, uh, what does he call it? Like his, not his what, mobile from Tesla fu- motors. Or? Yeah. And then he has like a, not a, it's like a cell phone, but he calls it like not a car phone or a mobile phone. It's like my, my portable phone or something. But I'm like, wow. So that's actually, you know, from 1983 or whatever, that's pretty well, pretty good prediction of the future. Uh, you know, but then what the book one centers on is the, son in this story doesn't have any siblings. And so he really wanted a brother and he's told his parents, Hey, you can just buy one from the store. No problem. And his parents debate about it. And finally they get it to him. But I grew up with just a sister. Hey there. Hey there, Nicole, my sister. And you know, so I didn't have a brother and I, so I love this book. Uh, my sister and so there's I, a little wish fulfillment there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my sister and I, we fought like cats and dogs growing up and we get along great now, but growing up, I thought, well, how can I get a brother? Oh, what if they just, you get a brother from the store. Oh, that's Perfect. a little scary now. That, that's yeah. a little man was not meant to meddle uh, <laughs> eugenics. Ugh. And if you follow, you know, companies like Boston dynamics, like we're getting pretty close to this whole uh, robot buddy future. So I say, bring it on. Why not? I say, maybe let's think about the ramifications. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny that, that you have uh, for, for your first examples, uh, you cannot help but go to those examples, especially Star Wars, which of course yeah. is the very cool example. A lot for us all Star Wars in 1970 blank, and it was amazing, and it was a phenomenon. And you know, and I was an early adopter. 
I always feel a little bit envious when I hear mm-hmm. those stories. And then like, I listen to cassettes featuring a blue talking songbook <laughs> who taught kids uh, praise and worship music called Salty, the singing songbook. And, and yeah. that's no one's ever heard of that. And, and, uh, and yet that's my story. And we can right. come from these different perspectives, you know, whether it's the insular sheltered Christian subculture or the broader culture, you know, either way, uh, there are these amazing stories, these examples of human creativity that appeal to us for mixed reasons, but ultimately, especially in the Christian perspective, they can be seen as, as a healthy part of our development. You know, as we're, as we're young, we realize, wait a minute, this world is not all there is. There's this thing called imagination and that can take us anywhere. It's part of play. It's part of growing our brains It's part of becoming the creative God reflecting humans that he created us to be. Yeah. Well, and I think about that book, uh, my Android, my, my robot buddy, and some of the, just the subtle things in there that really led to what I wanted to study in college. I studied telecommunications engineering technology. And I got to think these sci-fi books I read as a kid probably had an effect on that of wanting to get into communication networks. And, um, you know, I, I had a summer job where I controlled this robot kind of thing. And so I, I love that idea growing up and I, I know how that's had an effect on me, but I want to transition now, Stephen, to a listener story. And this is from a different Stephen, Stephen H. At least he spells it correctly. Yes. The biblical way. PH. So he sent us this story quote in first or second grade. I checked this book out several times. It had a bunch of conspiracy theories about UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, and the Bermuda Triangle. I remembered the name Mysteries and Fantasies and had a vague idea that it was number 27 in an encyclopedia series. I finally tracked it down a few years ago, but I was deflated because it was not the same cover pictured here. Still amazing how clearly I remembered nearly every page, end quote. That's a, I love hearing about people who are not too grown up to track down something that they loved from childhood. And even now, like if you grew up with a particular TV show, you can find it. It doesn't have to be printed on VHS or even DVD or Blu-ray somewhere, you know, even if it's not on one of the many streaming services we're getting, uh, it's probably been uploaded somewhere, even questionably. So uh, you can find it and you can discover whether it really was as awesome as you remembered. Okay. So here (laughs) we you have your concession stand. I'll, ha- I'll have my little confessional booth right here. Okay. Uh, one of my other favorite cartoons growing up was Fluffy Dogs, which I, have you heard of that? I don't know, but okay. it totally sounds like an 80s cartoon. <laughs> it, Am I right? It was. So it was about these. Was there a merchandise tie-in? Yeah, I'm sure. So it was about these. So it was like multi, Rainbow Bright or. Yeah, like these okay. Rainbow Bright dogs. They walk on their hind legs and talk. So it was like the love child of Pound Puppies and Rainbow Bright. But they, they would go on these adventures and they would have this magical key that they put in the air and it would turn and open a invisible door or otherwise invisible door and they would go to these different worlds. Hey, now Superbook makes sense. Okay. Now. Right. Yeah, the, 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 I mean, Superbook, the, same the, the kind titular of genre. magical book. Yeah. Yes. Unexplained magical item but, serves as portal. Okay. But here's my confession. So I, <laughs> it's just a goofy story, but I could not find this on anywhere you could buy it. So I, I found it on YouTube and we watched it with our kids and we we're kind of like, ah, oh, okay. You know, just kind of meh afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. You know, not that I endorse piracy, but a lot of stuff is on YouTube. You'd be surprised. Arr. Well, why don't we go to our, our older childhood, Steven? So tell me some of the stories from your, you know, kind of middle grade years. Right. Well, this is our, you're right. The, the border gets a little fuzzy here because I mean, I, I tried to kind of categorize these from early childhood and now older childhood. So, you know, perhaps a pre-elementary school age, kind of blending over to about, you know, between age five through eight or eight, eight through 12. Um, last thing I mentioned was the Salty, the singing songbook series, uh, which is by um, uh, two Christian musicians named um, Ernie or Retino, Retino, or Debbie Kerner Retino was his wife. Um, I think they're still working, but uh, Salty has been left in the, uh, I think, in the early 90s you know, as a franchise. That was a big one with uh, cassettes, and uh, they did a couple of uh, VHS episodes that were kind of um, uh, uh, musical theater type uh, shows. I mean, those songs will still get in my head sometimes. And I, I would think that that's kind of, for me, on the border between early childhood and older childhood. 
Salty, the singing songbook, though, for me, uh, uh, was... Salty with a P. With right? a P, yes. yes. Well, like a Psalter, you know, right. the the, uh, the Book of Psalms. So, you know, they put some thought into that. And uh, you can probably still hear some of their songs that bouncing around Sunday school classes uh, nationwide. But really, the, the, the franchise, the fantasy franchise, and I would group it as that, that marked my older childhood uh, development, was the series Adventures in Odyssey. Uh, so again, we're, we're in the uniquely Christian-made uh, culture or subculture. But I would not leave that series, oh, that's Christian subculture. It's kind of roped off from the rest. It may not be as big as Star Wars, certainly is not, uh, but Adventures in Odyssey is still going today. And I'll tell you this, last year, I finally started doing that thing that our, our listeners said earlier, kind of reconnecting with that series. And not that I thought that I would have ever aged out of it, because I'm frankly not that much of a fool. I know that Odyssey is going to age well. It was so well done. And it has been going since 1987. Wow. The, uh, the ministry focus on the family started it, uh, you know, and probably some of the impulses there were, hey, we need some Christian entertainment around these here parts, but they got some real talent to put it together. The creators of the show were named Phil Lawler and Steve Harris. Phil Lawler is still working uh, on Odyssey. I think he's kind of been off and on, but he's, he's still working on it now, I understand. They got top voice acting talent uh, to do the series, and uh, they got uh, a gentleman named Hal Smith to play the uh, the hero of the show, uh, John Avery Whitaker. Uh, he was actually uh, the um, the bumbling drunk Otis Campbell on the Andy Griffith show. And oh, wow! Wow! What a headbender when I discovered that they were the same person. <laughs> that was so strange. Uh, they had also got uh, several actors who'd been on some Disney channel shows, like, you know, cable TV channels were big in the eighties. As we were talking about, even the Christians had one or two, a uh, Disney channel got started then. And they had a lot of uh, preschool type shows. So several of the actors from there who'd worked with Hal Smith, who also voiced Winnie the Pooh in the Pooh corner mm. uh, TV show. And I think he also did owl. Uh, anyway, and we could do a whole episode about that. But my, my point is like, they got top people. Uh, to do the acting there, who loved radio, who loved radio drama. We just need a whole episode about how great uh, Adventures in Odyssey is, so I'll need to stop there. But I'll link to my uh, a recent episode, uh, our blog, actually, about uh, Adventures in Odyssey and my rediscovery of it uh, in the show notes. Uh, that uh, that article actually got shared by one of the creators of Adventures in oh, Odyssey, wonderful. who's now my friend on Facebook. So, <laughs> hey, 11-year-old Steven... You made it, buddy. You made it. <laughs> bucket list item, old earth bucket list item achieved. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I, again, this is one of those stories I, I didn't even know about growing up, but now I am discovering it for the first time through my kids. This uh, show has an app where it's kind of like an all you can stream. That's the Odyssey Adventure Club. Yes. Yes. I'm actually subscribed to that now. Yeah. As a grown man. Right. And On purpose. It, uh, we listen to them all the time as a family and they're, they're fantastic. And like you said, they definitely age well. And just a side note here, it's amazing to think the 33 years this has been going on, you could easily make this case for, well, why didn't they just do plain old Bible teaching and parent parenting lessons? Wouldn't that have been more effective? And, but think about how many people have remembered these stories. Like you can remember ones from your childhood that affect you now as a grown up, as an adult. And I, I'm just, I'm so excited about that for my own kids that they're learning so many good lessons through stories that they're going to remember their whole lives. So I have to mention this before moving on. Uh, just as I, I, I get chills, literally just thinking about it. I think if I, if someone pinned me down and said, what's your favorite Odyssey episode? Like I don't have a favorite. They're all they're all wonderful. Well, what's your favorite? I'd have to say it was a two parter called "The Mortal Coil." Okay. Yes, I'll have um, to check that one out. That one is it's the one where Mister Whitaker, who is like the one punch man for Christianity, because he can just do like everything: archaeologist, inventor, ice cream shop owner, local entrepreneur, everything. You know, publishing company owner. Uh, I list all of his various job titles. He's a very busy man. Uh, in my article. But in addition to all those things, he's also a pioneer in the world of virtual reality because he invented the Imagination Station, where you can step into this vaguely time travel-ish uh, holodeck slash rocket ship slash Doctor Who's TARDIS type device. It's taken many different forms and journey into Bible stories. Well, Mr. Whitaker made a program that would simulate life after death. The Christian steps in there, 
then you know your imagination might run away with you and you might not want to come back to <laughs> this side of paradise uh and then the, the the more horrifying consequence and this is one landmark of adventures and odyssey is that within the parameters of their target audience kids ages 8 through 12 they'd go there and a non-christian character a beloved figure stepped into the imagination station and did the marvel mad scientist thing used it on himself and they didn't just strongly imply that he had experienced a virtual taste of hell. They just came out and said it. Oh, wow. And they handled it so sensitively mm. and yet also didn't pull any punches. Mm. And here I am, you know, 20 some odd years later, still remembering that. Oh, that, oh so that came out when you were This younger. was in the 90s. Oh, wow. I listened to it live okay. on the radio. I mean, they left a cliffhanger. You didn't know whether Mr. Whitaker was going to die at wow. the end of the show. Uh, the, it was a part one and a part two. That stuff leaves an impression on you. And when, when, when clever and the good creators in, uh, I presume a lot of prayer and a lot of, probably a lot of debate over this episode, I don't know the backstory of it, but when, when they set out to do something like that, like it will affect people decades later. Sure. Hey, Odyssey guys, if you're listening to this, please first come on the podcast. I want to knock over another old earth bucket list item. But secondly, just thank you for that story. I really appreciate that. And literally now like I, I, I yearn for that eternal reality that Mr. Whitaker almost experienced uh, in the fulfillment of prophecy when Christ returns and ushers in the new heavens and new earth. Briefly, too, uh, an eternal reality hinted at by, of course, that other series that I loved when I was an older child, The Chronicles of Narnia. Here we go. It's a Fantastical Truth episode and a day ending in Y, so we have to mention yeah. C.S. Lewis. We won't belabor this one, but I would say that as an older kid, age 10, I think, is when my parents gave me the gift set. I actually, being a, a rather pharisaical child, was very nervous because book one, because they were sorted right, right. the box set, okay. book one is the lion, the witch, and the, the wardrobe, the witch. Oh, wait, they didn't have Magician's Nephew first? No, because it okay. shouldn't be first. <laughs> no, no, I will die on that hill. I will die, I, I, okay, I will take a nap on that hill. But <laughs> book one, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. The, but the witch is that thing that we don't, right, we, we don't do witches. We don't practice witchcraft. No, we don't say like Halloween. We don't witches. But my parents gave me this book set. And mm. they obviously thought it was okay. So it must have been okay. It's uh, a loophole. Right it, it is. And unfortunately, too, I read the books the first time. I've kind of blocked this from my memory, but I, I think I have to confront this. I read the books for the first time all the wrong ways. I read the openings first. Each one of the openings, uh, with with the exception of the horse and his boy, because I love the portal moments. Oh, so you just read the first chapter of each book. I just wanted to know how the kids got into Narnia. And then didn't finish. I thought that that okay. was so magical. And then the rest of the story, like I, I, at first I couldn't quite get into. Till, like Maybe I just inched up just a little bit in child development, and then boom. Oh, you're not only supposed to read the whole story after that, but... It's also really amazing, hmm. you know, just just as amazing, if not better, than that initial jump from our world to the uh, the enchanted land of Narnia and the and the lands around it. Well, so middle grade years, so I'm just saying from like fifth to ninth grade or something. Uh, I was into a very different series. It was called Captain Planet, a TV series about these uh, what four or five kids that have these magical rings. Oh, that's a meme now. That, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it summons, you know, Captain Planet and uh um, Now here's some quality they, religious they, programming. Oh, yes. And, you know, I Ted Turner, wasn't it? I, See, I want to say Ted Turner, my co-author, but no, it's Ted Turner, oh, right. the founder of CNN and broadcast uh, pioneer. Yeah. I believe this was his. Uh, this was yeah, his they, baby. They were always going after the uh, the dirty industrialists, and like cleaning Captain, up Captain the environment. Sludge and right, just very obvious bad guys, Mister Chemical Pollution. But um, oh, yeah, so I totally bought into this worldview and in, in recycling. And I'm not saying you shouldn't recycle, but there is definitely a worldview behind a lot of this because I mean, Captain Planet works for Gaia, and so she's this magical goddess of the earth or Wasn't something. Isn't she voiced by Whoopi Goldberg? Probably. That sounds about right. But you know, I really wanted that that power of the the ring of with with the uh, firepower. Oh, so you did not want to fly around blue uh, without pants. That'd be fun. I I just thought hey But with pants. I, I want to I mean I'm a I'm a about a teenage boy by this point. I just want fire, you know. Fire is admittedly yes. pretty boss. <laughs> but in terms of books in this time uh, around sixth grade, I believe, I was introduced to the Sword of Shannara. Shannara, 
Shannara? I'm pretty sure it's Shannara because I met the author Terry Brooks last year, Shannara. 2019. That Realmakers. sounds like the Texan way of saying. it. I had Shannara. better be pronouncing it correctly after okay. meeting Terry Brooks. Okay. Terry Brooks, don't listen to this. I have. I've always said it wrong in my head. Then. I, I think he may have remarked that everyone says it wrong, but I hope I'm not reversing his correction and the incorrect pronunciation right now. Sort of Shannara, 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 Shilora, Shilora fans. Let us know. I, I read the I read the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings around the same time. I think actually for class, but I was really into the Shannara books. They just really gripped my imagination. And the other series I was into, and I, this is one we share with Star Trek: Next Generation. So Stephen, growing up, uh, you know, and it's funny, I, I don't know if this was normal or not for a lot of kids, but I had a television in my room and Star Trek came on at 9 p.m., which was my bedtime. And I would want to watch it, but my mom would always say, no, you got to turn it off, go to bed, get up for school the next day. So Gen Z listeners, this was in the ancient era in which you had <laughs> to live according to the TV schedule. That's right. Rather than it serves you. That's right. And there was no DVR even if you're, yeah, whatever. But uh, so I, as a clever, you know, 12 year old boy, I figured out that I could watch this show at volume one, like turn the volume all the way down to number one. And I would kind of lay on my side. I'm trying to like m mimic this or whatever. I would lay on my side and hold the remote next to me where you couldn't see it from the doorway. And I would hold, put my thumb on the off button then if I heard the doorknob behind me open, I would turn it off and close my eyes, pretend like I wasn't actually watching it. And, you know, to this day, and I don't, I think my mom listened to this show, but to this day, I still don't know if I fooled my mom with that little routine, but I believed that I did. But that was how I watched Star Trek as a kid was sneaking it at night. But with Star Trek, uh, what spoke to me in that was the hopeful story arc. So we, you know, we want to talk about finding biblical truth in fiction. And there's a lot you can say about Star Trek. There's, there's a humanist worldview that's kind of assumed. But at the same time, a lot of other science fiction was very negative or horror-oriented, and Star Trek was very positive and hopeful-oriented. And I, as a kid at that, at that stage of my life, that's what I really needed. And also in this, just getting a little personal, but those characters were the the father figures, the men that I needed in my life that I needed to look up to. So, you know, I didn't know about Salty. I didn't know about Mr. Whitaker. Mr. Whitaker would have been a much better example, I think, than Picard. Still, if you can't get Mr. Whitaker, then get Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah, it's, it's pretty close. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and I'm going to skip through to a listener story here. This is Meg M. Meg, thank you so much for sending this story. Quote, where things really took off for me was probably a beginner book called You Will Go to the Moon by May and Ira Freeman, illustrated by Robert Patterson. I adored that book and remember first having it read to me, then reading it myself at a very young age. I still have it. It combines science fiction with what was then science fact. And I believed every word about a future of rockets, moon landings, exploration, and living off world. The children in that story, or the child in that story was me, and I was going to the moon. Once that door opened, there was no turning back. I gobbled up anything I could find about space and soon tumbled onto the bridge of the Enterprise. And we're back to the Enterprise. There we go. Mm -hmm. So that's, thank you, Meg, for sending that story in. First time, I'm a little envious of you that you discovered uh, Star Trek, specifically The Next Generation, so early. The I just never got to it until uh, much later in life, uh, after the range that we're covering here. Uh, the first time I saw an uh, episode of The Next Generation was actually The Best of Both Worlds, Part 1. Oh, yeah. Season 3, Closer, Cliffhanger, Picard has been assimilated. I did not know these characters. <laughs> I wasn't even that familiar with Star Trek. That was Trek. the first episode you saw. First one I wow. ever saw. What a way to debut, right? Hello, that's the deep end right that there. That was amazing. And But it was also, I mean, it was a high watermark for the series. Just imagine if I had seen the episode where Council Troy gets pregnant <laughs> first. <laughs> I actually think that's a very pro-life episode, but it probably is not the best one of the series. And Best of Both Worlds was a cultural phenomenon at the time when it aired. And I, I saw the rerun. How know, old were you the, when you saw that? I don't remember, but it was it was probably college age. You okay, know, it like wasn't uh, well, it wasn't very early. 
And and yet I'd somehow never gotten into Star Trek, even though I wanted to. Well, this definitely got me into it. Uh, just I, I rectified that uh, oversight immediately. Anyway, uh, skipping ahead from Adventures and Odyssey, in uh, we'll, we'll go just jump into the teenage years here. Uh, and by the way, uh, this is by no means the only uh, episode uh, of the of Fantastical Truth in which we will explore these from either our perspective. Uh, or from listener feedback, uh, each one of these uh, stories that we're talking about could have its own episode. And in fact, we already have some planned, even for uh, my first teenage fandom. I think it really counts. Um, I, I read like uh, Frank Peretti's books here, uh, This Present Darkness, uh, Piercing the Darkness, his two supernatural thrillers. Uh, and then I like my mom had read those. I mean, those were big in the, in the eighties when I've heard of those. those, I've never read them. Right. We're actually going to talk about the, uh, that first book, this present darkness in a few episodes from now, there was also a few other Peretti novels and just other, other, other solid Christian made novels that I read. Now, disclaimer, we did not have, when I was growing up, any kind of, we don't read secular novels here. Uh, there was no rule about that. There was no creepy church environment, nothing like that. But yes, I was homeschooled and that probably had something to do with my emphasis on Christian made media, but it was just where I was or where my family was, you know, uh, which also led me though, striking off on my own. You know, my parents did not get uh, these books. I got these books. So it's the first fandom that I discovered independently was the left behind series. Okay, here we go. Yes. First book uh, released, I believe it was 1995. This is one of the first things you and I ever talked about. Right, right. It is because I I still have, I mean, you never forget your first uh, fandom. And although I had a few before this, and this is the first one that I can genuinely say, I found this. I didn't have a friend who found it. Uh, I didn't have parents or someone at church tell me about it. I was literally in a, a bookstore i think it was at a bible theme park in arkansas maybe in 1997 so a couple of years after the first book had released and they so, had so you were in by high school around right time. exactly okay. yes and i just saw the book on a shelf and i believe that radio minister uh from uh, shadow mountain community church in california dr david jeremiah had been going through a series about the book of revelation and prophecy and you know much dispensational very pre-tribulation so awesome and I thought, oh, they wrote a novel about it. And uh, my parents recognized the name Tim LaHaye, and they didn't know Jerry B. Jenkins, who actually wrote the series based on Tim LaHaye's prophecy beliefs. Uh, but it was an end times thriller series, a slow starter with the first book, uh, but definitely picked up once the Antichrist uh, takes over the world, like Pinky in the Brain. Mm-hmm. And then there is a world war and earthquakes and, you know, the book of Revelation comes to life and everybody needs to stay alive, have a lot of car chases and save a lot of souls. Okay. So I just want to point out one thing here. This is for our Gen Z listeners and no offense to anyone here, but there was a remake of Left Behind recently with Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. And so we are talking about... The books. Yeah. The books that came out over... Gosh, what, 25 years ago? Well, 1995, yeah. 2020 as we sit here. And yes. uh, oh, wow. confusingly, there was also a movie that came out in 1998. Of 99. The left, yeah. yeah the one with Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron. Yes. So, Stephen, that is how I discovered that series. I was a freshman. Oh, was it now? Yeah. This so, is news to me, y'all. I'm not putting this on. Okay. I didn't know this. Okay. So, you know, I was just then kind of getting into the world of, of Christian stories and and books and movies and whatever coming into it from the outside. Yeah. Yes. And so left behind, I I think left behind was the very first overtly Christian movie I ever saw that that I can remember right now. But Christian made movie, Christian, Christian ideas. Yeah. Like, like kind of in that, then they go up to, what is it? Episode three about the definition of Christian movie. Yeah. So it was in that inner circle of the concentric circles, right? A book about our story about Christianity for Christians Mm -hmm. pretty much. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd known Kirk Cameron from his other shows growing up at, um, growing pains when you were having growing pains. Growing up. <laughs> yeah. And I still remember getting that movie I left behind on a VHS and I had this little 13 inch TV VCR combo in the uh, back room of my mom's house. And I came home from college and I don't even know how I got this video, but I watched it and I was just like, Oh my goodness. This is how the end times are going to happen. And it's all right there and it's all in the Bible. And oh my, you know, and I was very new to, to reading the Bible on my own. Um, I think by this point I had read the whole New Testament, but I 
never had made sense of Revelation like most people. And I was really blown away by that movie. And so, you know, you probably could go back and watch it now. You'd make fun of me for saying that. But again, this is the first first movie like this I'd ever seen that was based on the Bible and prophecy. And it's future-oriented, which I, I love anything future-oriented. So that's my, that's my little tie-in there. The books were better. Yeah, of course. They were. And the audio dramas were even better, I would say, than the books. Of course, you know, the, the books still get prime billing, though, because they're the ones who started it. But uh, Gap Digital, a, a studio out of, um, I think, I mean, actually, I've been to that studio. I went there in 2005, I believe it was. They're literally a hop, skip, and a jump uh, from the uh, campus of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, very evangelical environment there. They actually made the series, and I, I actually still have those, and I still listen to them every once in oh, a while. Yeah. Speaking of audio drama, like this is you know as high quality as Adventures in Odyssey. Totally different cast, obviously totally different ideas. Um, might need a whole episode for that as well. But that was also my first internet fandom, by the way. Uh, back when the Left Behind books were coming out, uh, it was the late '90s. Uh, the internet was just beginning to take off a lot. We got our uh, modem in 1996, and then by around uh, when the Left Behind series was popular. <laughs> uh, probably, or we can splice it in if you've got an effects library somewhere. But uh, there were bulletin boards before there was social media and blogs, and that's uh, that's that's where I got my start. Uh, even writing some fan fiction for the series uh, in the late 1990s, and the the Jerry B. Jenkins, the author himself, was fairly active on the boards too. So oh, there was cool. always the chance that you'd run into him. Uh, he actually read some of my stuff and uh, commented, which you know made made my little fanboy day. Yeah. So that was the beginning of a uh, overall long and beautiful friendship. And we can comment about the end times theology or the fact that it was a pot boiler thriller that, uh, you know, did what I think it set out to do, but wasn't peak literary achievement. But then again, it wasn't designed to be that. Yeah. Well, around the same time you were into those books, uh, the books I was reading were the wheel of time. It was an actual peak yeah. literary achievement. So <laughs> <laughs> Robert so, Jordan, right? Yeah, so Robert Jordan has, uh, okay, so he started writing these books in, I want to say 1990, and there are 14 of them total. He passed away in 2010 before he finished the series, and then he knew he was dying. He had, um, I forget the name of the disease, but he could see that he was terminal. So he brought on Brandon Sanderson, who's now- Before he was big. big, Before he was big. Mm -hmm. And Sanderson wrote, or sort of co-wrote, the last three books using Jordan's notes and outlines and, of course, put his own voice into it. But I found these books uh, mid-90s, and they were, I mean, they're gigantic, Stephen. They're like 800, 900-page paperbacks. So I, I, still had my, I still have my copy of the first book, and it's just like in tatters. But uh, these are epic fantasy books, kind of alternate world. Um, very, very alternate mythology that sort of tries to tie into Earth and its mythologies, but um, it's a magical world. It's a, um, you know, there's this mythic quest. There's kind of the Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces aspect to it. Uh, there's sort of a King Arthur, Sword in the Stone plot device in it. But to me, what I loved was, again, kind of going back to Star Trek, what I love about Star Trek is there were many positive examples of manhood. Now I want to emphasize that because there's this element in those books that is all about, it's like a metaphor for what we would say toxic masculinity. Really? So the the premise of the book is that magic is divided between men and women, and they both have their own little subset of a magical power. But the the magical power for men has become tainted by the devil character. So anytime men use magic in this book, they eventually go insane and kill everyone and then die. And so men, so the world of this book is one where women are the only magic users and therefore kind of control everything. And men so it's are, like a matriarchal society. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's um, almost like a fall imagery here. And I mean, not everything right. can be cast directly in those biblical categories, but that's, that's what, right. that's what it's sounding like to me. And now you hear that, you know, you, like I said, you hear that term today, toxic masculinity, which this series is being produced for Amazon on television. And I, I'm oh. pretty sure they're going to ratchet that up a lot. 
but hopefully not put in any naked people. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> as you mentioned, in episode yeah. five. Yeah. But um, and there's definitely you know they they I'm sure they can find ways to do it the source material unfortunately but but having said all that with the tainted male magic power the men in that book are so many in in so many ways great examples of men and again growing up that is what I needed and so I I still enjoy those books now there was a time where I I just couldn't read them when I was really young on my faith but now I've I've gone back and I've I've reread the first couple of books several times. That sounds really cool. I, I've not actually read those even now. I certainly didn't read them when I was younger. Uh, that's that's oh, if only I had more time. What yeah, was, I think that's on a T-shirt. So many books, so little time. <laughs> right, something like that. Yeah. Notice by the way, I've not actually talked about superheroes. That's because I I didn't get into comics okay. back then. I wish I wish I had. Um, listeners, if, if this is how you discovered fantastical stories, do let us know. Oh, yes. Especially if you grew up with, uh, image comics like I did. And Oh, X-Men. okay. So that's yeah. not, uh, that's, I didn't not, even think about putting that in our DC or Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let me go to our third and final listener story. This is from Kevin R he says, quote, like so many others, one of my earliest introductions to fantasy was the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. But what might be kind of unique is that it was my fourth grade Sunday school teacher who introduced it to me by reading it to our class every Sunday if we got through our Bible lesson. As I recall, it took us most of the school year that year to get through the entire book, but there was no going back for me after that. I've often said that I learned more about Jesus from a fictional lion that year than I did from the actual lessons. The story with all its mythical creatures and setting and a rather intense witch captured my imagination and caused me to examine my own attitude in light of both Edmund and Peter. But through Edmund, I learned not only that my bad behaviors could be forgiven and forgotten, but that my life could still be more noble than ever. I made good choices going forward. It was that book that first gave me a desire to be heroic And it was the beginning of a call to engage in the cosmic battle on the side of God and eventually a call to the ministry, end quote. That that is really fun, Stephen, to hear this, hear how this one book led Kevin from fourth grade to now, uh, I'm assuming now he's in vocational ministry. Like what, what a great story of that. And you hear so many people who are active now as grownups and they have their own families and their own callings. And usually it's, it's because they've had like a, a mentor figure, a, a parent, maybe a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or someone in their life who taught them from that nonfiction biblical perspective, this is what the gospel is like. This is why Jesus died. This is the mission that you're called to do and gave them that framework of understanding their purpose in God's universe. But often I hear along with that, someone saying, God also spoke to me through this story. And we don't believe God inspired the story like he inspired his word, but the Holy Spirit is active in Christian people who are given imaginations and these gifts of creativity, whether it's C.S. Lewis or the folks who made Superbook, the anime from the 1980s, uh, or any of those directly Christian things can obviously influence us more specifically uh, to, to flesh out the stories of, of the Bible, the true story of the gospel narrative. And yet also because we believe that the Holy Spirit is active in other ways in the world, which we in theologians would call common grace. We find how we can be drawn toward God's big true story of the gospel through even the images that are dimly reflected in star Wars. Anytime you got a hero's journey, it's going to reflect the journey of Christ in some way even if it's broken or hard to see sometimes. And the only way to clarify it for sure is through the gospel itself by hearing the word of God. But it's just really cool to hear whether it's the wheel of time or maybe even Captain Planet or maybe even the uh, 1999 Left Behind movie. Uh, we think that, uh, that the Holy Spirit can be active through all of those. I do want to say real quick that one of my biggest growth forward in truth and imagination was with the 1998 animated film, The Prince of Egypt. Oh, yeah. I would love to do a whole I had that on my list about to talk that about. One. We'll have to talk about that. I mean, just uh, so many influences, so little time. We could do a whole episode on that one, particularly because there's literally going to be a Broadway musical based on The Prince oh, of Egypt. Oh, wow. With new songs and everything. 
Uh, that's an underappreciated jewel uh, from the early days of DreamWorks. You know, some Christian influence there. You know, even some some Jewish uh, influence in, in mm-hmm. the creation of this this amazing movie. Uh, and it kind of in a, a interesting transition period between traditional Disney style animation and computer animation. This is one of the last uh, really fine animated films, and the music by uh, by Hans Zimmer and Steven Schwartz is is astoundingly good. Well, that wraps up our content for today. And we, Stephen, we had so many more stories than just these three that our listeners. Yeah, have we had to us. skim the list there, right? <laughs> for those of you three who's we read from, we I apologize, we did have to trim down just a little bit. But um, Stephen, we I really want to hear more stories like this. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to share your story of how you first discovered fantastical stories, please send us your thoughts to podcast at lorehaven.com. Or go to our website and use the form to send us a message or leave a comment. And I would love to hear a story like this every time we do an episode. So we've got a few more we'll be sprinkling out, but we would love to get even more. So please go there and, and share your story. I particularly like to know like how that story fits into your testimony. You know, yeah. Christians, whether you know, throughout the ages of evangelical dumb in America and beyond, like to share their testimonies at summer camps or revival meetings or prayer meetings or uh, just regular church uh, conversations or home conversations. And I think more and more we need to be seeing how God has used those amazing stories that he's put in the world or among Christ's people or both. How do those connect to the way that Jesus not only saved you, but is growing you to become more like him day by day. And as long as we keep getting your stories like these, uh, we will feature them in episodes going forward. We'd love to hear from you. By the way, uh, that includes our next episode, which features award-winning novelist and uh, nonfiction writer Brian Gadawa. We're going to do the big Christian imagination episode. Probably going to fix that up in just about 10 minutes, right? Uh, actually, it's a pretty big topic, and fortunately, Brian Gadawa is going to have some really good things to say to us, I'm sure. So please join us for that episode. We're going to go through the whole Bible and understand, uh, seek to understand how Jesus defines and redeems the gift of God's imagination for us. That'll be a, a keystone episode for us here on this podcast. Join us then and beyond on this eternal mission to discover these amazing stories and look back at our childhoods and see how God was working as we seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>